So here is Eliot, according to a pencil sketch by Samuel Lawrence in 1860, when Eliot was 41. This was the year after she published Adam Bede, her first novel, and the year in which she published The Mill on the Floss. She wrote Brother Jacob over the summer and then tried to start Romola, but was delayed by the idea of Silas Marner, which occupied her for most of the rest of that year and the beginning of 1861. In this lecture, I'm going to be discussing her reception over time. I'm going to assume that you're sufficiently interested in her to see how you fit into the history of responses to her. There's quite a lot to cover, so I'm going to move fast. And to make things easier, here's a graph representing very roughly her popularity in Britain over time. Scenes of clerical life was well, but not overwhelmingly, received. Adam Bede was a huge critical success, and this lasted for her whole life. None of the later books was quite as popular. By March 1860, Adam Bede was translated into Dutch, French, German, Hungarian and Russian. Count Tolstoy read and admired it in English. His niece translated it into Russian. And 30 years later, he classified it, along with scenes of clerical life, as an example of truly religious art, along with parables, gospels, psalms, and the work of Dostoevsky. After the publication, Eliot's masculine pseudonym was blown, but as the title of these lectures indicate, she retained it throughout her career. She had chosen to adopt it not only in order to hide her femininity, but in order specifically not to be the Marianne Evans who had eloped to Germany and, no, and now cohabited with George Henry Lewis. The Mill on the Floss and Silas Marner were also popular. The other 60s works, Romola, Felix Holt and The Spanish Gypsy, were less so. Middlemarch was again a great popular success, though not to Lewis's and presumably Eliot's disappointment, as much as Adam Bede. Daniel Deronda was altogether a more problematic work, and its Gentile half took most of it of the interest of Gentile critics, just as its Jewish part did that of Jewish critics. Nonetheless, the overall trend in her lifetime was one of increasing reputation. Her social ostracism, particularly by women, was to some extent overcome. She and Lewis became major figures in English artistic and intellectual society, holding their famed Sunday afternoons in the Priory townhouse, which they'd bought in 1864. Henry James said of his second of three visits, I had my turn at sitting beside her and being conversed with in a low but harmonious tone and baiting a tendency to aborder, that's to broach, only the highest themes, I have no fault to find with her. Eliot found herself with disciples, usually women, as far afield as America. Some would write to her and ask her their advice on problems in their own lives. The Queen became a fan. Eliot's friend, Edith Simcox, dedicated a book to her with, quote, idolatrous love, and at one point even prayed to her at night. That is, Eliot became a sage. She was well aware of the fact, and if she was not entirely happy with it, 
nor was she entirely unhappy. She began to make money. In 1879, the earnings from Middlemarch were just under £9,000. Daniel Deronda made just over that. In her whole career, she made £45,000. That's about 3.5 million contemporary pounds. To put this in perspective, the most Trollope earned for a novel was 3,500 for Can You Forgive Her? Dickens, on the other hand, earned around £80,000 for his novels alone. Remember, that's in comparison to Eliot's 45000 As Eliot earned money, she also spent it, beginning to cultivate her appearance and dress and indulging in a few luxury items such as a latest model carriage for herself and Lewis. I want to give a couple of examples of the reputation she enjoyed. In 1872, the year of Middlemarch, Alexander Maine, a sycophantic Scot, published an anthology of Wise, Witty and Tender Sayings of George Eliot. That's the title. It is dedicated, quote, to George Eliot in recognition of a genius as original as it is profound and a morality as pure as it is impassioned. In the introduction, he asserted that she had, quote, forever sanctified the novel, capital N, by making it the vehicle of the grandest and most uncompromising moral truth. And it was popular, reprinting three times in the next eight years, adding more quotations from her works as they appeared. By the end of the century, it had ten British editions. Unfortunately, the only copy the Bodleian here in Oxford has is from 1872, so we don't get to see what Maine made of Middlemarch. In Christmas 1878, two years before she died, Maine produced the George Eliot birthday book, which is a diary themed with aphorisms from Eliot for every day of the year. Eliot was interested enough to be concerned about which quotations were included. But she was also worried about appealing to a vulgar taste, and even more so that isolating her aphorisms might make her appear a preacher and... I have always exercised a severe watch against anything that could be called preaching. My chief doubt as to the desirability of these sayings has always turned on the possibility that the volume might encourage such a view of my writings. Henry James did indeed have something of this view of Daniel Deronda. That is, one of him did. In an externalised presentation of critical indeterminacy, he reviewed Daniel Deronda in a fictional conversation between three friends, all of whom have read the novel. Theodora loves it. Constantius balances praise and criticism. Paul Correa complains that the novel is protracted, pretentious, pedantic, addicted to moralising and philosophising, and possessed of a hero who is, quote, a dreadful prig. On the other hand, F.R. Leavis was right to say that the portrait of a lady, which came out the year after Eliot's death, could not have been written but for the influence of Daniel Deronda. At the time of her death in 1880, she was celebrated as the greatest of contemporary English novelists. The physicist John Tyndall described her as a woman whose achievements were without parallel in the previous history of womankind. In February 1881, Leslie Stephen, 
a man of letters and father of Virginia Woolf, wrote in the Cornhill magazine, Had we been asked a few weeks ago to name the greatest living writer of English fiction, the answer would have been unanimous. No one would have refused that title to George Eliot. He even speculated that she was currently underrated, commenting that When Shakespeare died, nobody imagined that English drama had touched its highest point. She may hereafter be regarded as the last great sovereign of a literary dynasty who had to bequeath her scepter to a comparatively petty line of successors. What he could not then have known, but what he half foresaw was that Eliot's death coincided with the beginning of a sharp decline in the triple-decker novel and what is now thought of as the Victorian realist novel altogether. But she was not buried in Westminster Abbey. This was almost exclusively because of her marital position, but it didn't help that she was an atheist. The irony here is that Darwin who did far more than Eliot to undermine Christianity, was buried in Westminster Abbey two years later. Soon after her death, a couple of publications helped to reinforce her reputation as a sage. In 1881, F.W.H. Myers published in the Century magazine a reminiscence about Eliot which is often quoted by critics. Hearing it, you'll understand why. In 1873, Myers, a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, invited Eliot and Lewis to watch the May Bumps, a rowing competition. One evening, Myers and Eliot went for a stroll in the fellow's garden at Trinity. Their conversation turned to the largest questions. Eliot, quote, taking as her trumpet the three words which have been so often used as the inspiring trumpet calls of men, the words God immortality, duty, pronounced with terrible earnestness, how inconceivable was the first, how unbelievable the second, and yet how peremptory and absolute the third. They part beneath the last twilight of starless skies, and he is left to gaze on vacant seats and empty halls, and heaven left lonely of a god. The other publication which reinforced Eliot's reputation as a sage was The Life of George Eliot by John Walter Cross. Eliot's second husband, if you count Lewis as her first, as she did, or her second if you don't. This tells Eliot's life largely in her own works, through letters, but it edits out much of her humour and wit. The public by this stage wanted revelations on her private life, particularly given the work's author, and were somewhat disappointed by the reverential portrait of a learned writer. A slight distaste of Eliot's seriousness correlated with a continuing preference for her early works over her later. Stevens, in the adulatory essay which I've already quoted, found the first part of The Mill on the Floss to be the culmination of her genius. In later works, quote, we have the growing tendency to substitute elaborate analysis for direct presentation. Romola, according to him, is a magnificent piece of cram. The, ma the masses of information have not been fused by a glowing imagination. Middlemarch is undoubtedly a powerful book, but to many readers it is a rather painful book, and it could hardly be called a charming book by anyone. 
James reviewed Cross's life sympathetically. But on its basis, he found Eliot to move from the abstract to the illustrative concrete rather than inducing the abstract from the concrete. He also found her, and this is peculiarly Jamesian criticism, in common with other Victorian novelists, to be loose in her manner of composition. He famously asked of the newcomers, Les Trois Mousquetaires and Vainaimir, War and Peace, what do such large, loose, baggy monsters with their queer elements of the accidental and the arbitrary artistically mean? He also found her too reflective and a little too spontaneous in some respects, calling her short story Brother Jacob the jeu d'esprit of a mind that is not often, perhaps not often enough, found at play. In the 1890s, this kind of opinion hardened further. And so begins the long downward trajectory in Eliot's critical reputation, which reached a low point in about 1930. George Saintsbury, in Corrected Impressions of 1895, found Felix Holt and Middlemarch of immense effort and erudition, but, quote, on the whole dead, and Daniel Deronda a kind of nightmare. For some years past, George Eliot, though may, she may still be read, has more or less passed out of critical appreciation. Negative judgment sometimes attached itself to the fact that Eliot was a woman. Arnold Bennett, in 1896, referred to her wordy, undisciplined, feminine style. Certain writers took reinforcement for their points from her physical plainness. There was also the beginning of the modernist smirk at the Victorians. W. E. Henley described her in 1890 as George plus science and minus sex. And this smile was precisely directed at the fact that Eliot was perceived to lack humour. Edmund Goss, in his 1897 short history of modern English literature, found that Eliot was part artist, part, quote, mechanician overloading her page with pretentious matter, working out her scheme as if she were building a steam engine. In Felix Holt and on to Daniel Deronda, the, the mechanician personage preponderated and our ears were deafened by the hum of the philosophical machine. Referring to this rise in her reputation, he says that she found herself gradually uplifted until about 1875 she sat enthroned on an educational tripod, an almost ludicrous pythoness. He remembered her driving through London in her carriage, a large, thick-set sibyl, dreamy and immobile, whose massive features, somewhat grim when seen in profile, were incongruously bordered by a hat. Strikingly, George Moore, when he reprinted his 1888 Confessions of a Young Man in 1904, removed his warm praise of Eliot. Nor was the situation any better for her reputation inside academia. The degree for which I assume many listeners to this lecture are reading stopped in Oxford with the study of Scott until after the beginning of the First World War. On the exam paper of 1916, for the paper 1784-1901, to 1901, there were several questions on Victorian poetry, but only one on a novelist, and that was Dickens. However, there were sympathetic analyses around the turn of the century, 
notably in W.C. Brownell's 1901 Victorian Prose Masters and Henry Bonnell's 1902, Charlotte Bronte, George Eliot, Jane Austen studies in their works. There were biographies in 1883, 90, 1901, 1902. Nonetheless, the general environment was bleak. Unlike Dickens, Eliot was singled out as representative, metonymic, of what was most disliked about the Victorians. It was in his book, George Eliot, of 1902, that Leslie Stevens said, However far the rage for revivalism may be pushed, nobody will ever want to revive the 19th century. Ford Maddox Ford, that mover and shaker amongst Anglo-American modernists, criticised her for her solemn moralising and correspondent lack of artistry. More specifically, Eliot fell foul in this period of two influential theorists of fiction. The first was Percy Lubbock, who in The Craft of Fiction of 1921 elevated showing above telling and considered that Eliot, along with Fielding and Balzac, inclined to pictures over drama, whereas Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were right to incline to the latter. The second was E.M. Forster, who published Aspects of the Novel in 1927. It is worth knowing that this was the most widely read English critical work on the novel for the next 25 years. In it, Eliot is devalued mainly by exclusion rather than direct attack, but when she is mentioned, her novels are described as shapeless and ponderous by comparison with the French and the Russians. Dostoevsky had been the central figure of the Russian craze, which swept the English intelligentsia during the First World War, whence Lubbock's concentration on the Russians, and had had a considerable influence on English modernism. Forster compares in some detail a passage from Bratia Karamazovi, the brothers Karamazov, during Dmitri's initial questioning for murder, and the scene from Adam Bede, where Dinah visits Hetty in jail. He remarks... It is on her massiveness that George Eliot depends. She has no nicety of style. The scene of Hetty and Dinah is sincere, solid, pathetic and penetrated with Christianity. Eliot is a preacher. Dostoevsky is a prophet whose characters are universal. He was less restrained, less diplomatic, in his commonplace book, in which he noted, on the subject of boredom, C. Bronte and G. Eliot positively progress while they massacre us. Wolfe is an interesting case. She wrote an essay on Eliot for the Times Literary Supplement in 1919, the centenary of Eliot's birth. It was reproduced in The Common Reader of 1925, where you can find it. She acknowledges the critical ill repute into which Eliot has fallen. To read George Eliot is to become aware of the credulity, not very creditable to one's insight, with which, half-consciously and par- partly maliciously, one had accepted the late Victorian version of a deluded woman who held phantom sway over subjects even more deluded than herself. She became one of the butts for youth to laugh at, the convenient symbol of a group of serious people who were all guilty of the same idolatry and could be dismissed with the same scorn. She memorably evokes the transition from Victorian seriousness to modernist amusement at that seriousness by imagining someone who years before had had the privilege to attend one of Eliot and Lewis's Sunday afternoons.
This imaginary person treasures their memory of what Eliot said to them personally and has been repeating this as an anecdote at dinner parties ever since. Eliot had said, We ought to respect our influence. We know, by our own example, how very much others affect our lives. And we must remember that we in turn have the same effect upon others. Wolf comments. Jealously treasured, committed to memory, one can imagine recalling the scene, repeating the words, 30 years later. And suddenly, for the first time, bursting into laughter. Wolfe makes new criticisms of her own. Of Eliot's heroines, she writes, There is no doubt that they bring out the worst in her, lead her into difficult places, make her self-conscious, didactic and occasionally vulgar. Her self-consciousness is always marked when her heroines say what she herself would have said. She disguised them in every possible way. She granted them beauty and wealth into the bargain. She invented, more improbably, a taste for brandy. That's a reference to Janet from Janet's Repentance. She allows her heroines to talk too much. She has little verbal felicity. She lacks the unerring taste which chooses one sentence and compresses the heart of the scene within that. However, the essay is also a defence of Eliot from contemporary commonplace attitudes towards her. She bucks the trend of devaluing the later works by defending Middlemarch as not a falling off, but, quote, the magnificent book which, for all its imperfections, is one of the few English novels written for grown-up people. She notes that, in fiction, where so much of personality is revealed, the absence of charm is a great lack. And her critics, who have been, of course, mostly of the opposite sex, have resented, half-consciously perhaps, her deficiency in equality which is held to be supremely desirable in women. But if we consider these portraits more closely, we shall find that they are all the portraits of an elderly celebrated woman, dressed in black satin, driving in her Victoria, a woman who has been through her struggle and issued from it with a profound desire to be of use to others. She stresses the difficulties which Eliot faced as a woman born in the English provinces in a relatively uneducated household. We see her raising herself with groans and struggles from the intolerable boredom of petty provincial society to be the assistant editor of a highly intellectual London review. Wolfe's implicit contrast, of course, is with her own upbringing. She perceives that Eliot had, quote, the distressing conviction to one so dependent upon affection that by becoming a blue stocking she was forfeiting her brother's respect. Her development was very slow and very awkward, but it had the irresistible impetus behind it of a deep-seated and noble ambition. Every obstacle at length was thrust from her path. She knew everyone. She read everything. Her astonishing intellectual vitality had triumphed. Youth was over, but youth had been full of suffering. She must reach beyond the sanctuary and pluck for herself the strange bright fruits of art and knowledge. Clasping them as few women have ever clasped them, she would not renounce her own inheritance. After her elopement, quote, the books which followed so soon after her union testify in the fullest manner to the great liberation which had come to her with personal happiness. Triumphant was the issue for her, 
whatever it may have been for her creations. And as we recollect all that she dared and achieved, how with every obstacle against her, sex and health and conventions, she sought more knowledge and more freedom till the body, weighted with its double burden, sank worn out. We must lay upon her grave whatever we have it in our power to bestow of laurel and rose. This essay had a powerful influence on subsequent feminist criticism, including the observation, reiterated in A Room of One's Own in 1929, that Eliot's heroines achieve less than she herself did. But the important take-off decade for feminist literary criticism had not yet arrived. We move into the 1930s and the low point for Eliot's critical reputation of Lord David Cecil's early Victorian novelists of 1934. Cecil, for those of you who don't know, was Professor of English Literature at Oxford in 1948-70 and a member of the Inklings, the literary group surrounding C.S. Lewis, including J.R.R. Tolkien. I would apologise for the quality of this photo of him were it not for the fact that it was taken by Lady Ottiline Morrell, the famous hostess of the Bloomsbury Group at Garsington Manor, which you should be aware is within striking distance of Oxford. Cecil analyses the ill repute into which Victorian literature had fallen. He describes his early Victorian novelists, by which he means Dickens, Thackeray, Charlotte Bronte, Emily Bronte, Gaskell, Trollope and Eliot, as lawful and undisputed monarchs of literature. At least so they were, else how should they have attained their majestic position on the shelves, rubbing shoulders on equal terms, as it were, with Milton and Gibbon and Boswell's Life of Johnson? But no author's reputation is certain for fifty years at least after his death. Will these novelists keep their high place? The experience of the last few years might lead us to doubt it. The learned and Olympian kind of critic speaks of them less often than of French or Russian novelists, whilst the bright young people of the literary world, if they mention them at all, do so with boredom and contempt and disgust. He admits that this is partly because they are the heroes of an age just past, and, quote, by some mysterious law of human taste, it is almost impossible to enter into the spirit of the age that comes just before one's own. Pope could not admire any Caroline, the Romantics could not admire Pope. The Edwardians could not admire the Victorians. It was not that they disagreed with their ideals more than, those with, more than with those of other ages. They complained a great deal, it is true, of the Victorian ideal of domesticity, but they did not disapprove of it any more than they did of the Elizabethan ideal of virginity, and this they never complained of at all. Fashionably, he suggests that this may be a case of the Oedipus complex. After a few years, a period passes from shadow into the sunless, impartial daylight of history. Now the first thin rays of dawn have begun to, stri to strike the 19th century. We now realise that the fact that they may be Victorian is no more a cause for praise or blame than the fact that Chaucer is medieval. If we dislike them, it is not because we think, if indeed we have ever been so foolish, that they do not show a truly modern mind or values unacceptable to a post-war generation nauseous jargon of the 1920s. Let us unlock the glass doors and pull down the books and see what they look like. And so towards the end of his book, he approaches Eliot's. Their very titles, quote, are more like the names in a graveyard than the titles of enthralling works of fancy. 
nor if one turns from them to their author's portrait, does one feel more encouraged. The osseous lengthy countenance, those dark blank bands of hair, that anxious, serious, conscientious gaze, seem to sum up and concentrate in a single figure all the dowdiness, ponderousness and earnestness which we find most alien in the Victorian age. If people do read her, they do not enjoy her. The temper of our time has something to do with it. She is not even admired so much as Trollope. Like several critics before him, he described her as a cautious, scholarly, painstaking talent. Like James, he found that she moved from the general to the particular. Quote, she sacrifices life to art. Her plots are too neat and symmetrical to be true. We do not feel them to have grown naturally from their situation like a flower, but to have been put together deliberately and calculatedly like a building. As a result, she only occasionally touches our hearts with her, quote, school teacher's virtues. And yet, on closer inspection, he also finds that there is one sort of novel before George Eliot and another after her. The novel before, for Cecil, was loose, uneven and not an organic whole. The best characters were character parts and there were no characters as serious or complex as, say, Hamlet. The shiny example to this in the novel before Eliot is, for Cecil, Wuthering Heights. Cecil stands in a respectable tradition from the 19th century onwards, which sees Emily Bronte as the exception to most generalisations one might make about Victorian literature. He sees Eliot, though, as a turning point. Quote, she is the first modern novelist. She is an intellectual and her intellect penetrated areas which no novelist had before. He went, to go, went on so far as to claim that Victorian novelists who preceded her were all lowbrows. In her, the novel came of age in form and spirit and became something more than just entertainment. This is remarkably close to what Alexander Maine wrote in his preface to Wise, Witty and Tender Sayings. This branch of literature, by which he meant the novel, can never again be regarded as mere storytelling. And unlike Forster, he argued that Eliot asks to be compared with the greatest Russians, with War and Peace and the brothers Karamazov. His final word is, when all is said and done, she is a great writer, no unworthy heir of Thackeray and Dickens, no, unwo no unworthy forerunner of Hardy and Henry James. It's worth noting, by the way, that in the US her reputation never underwent the steep decline that it did in England. There were several screen adaptations made of her works before the Second World War. The Mill on the Floss and Felix Holt in 1915, Silas Marner in 1916, Romola in 24. The first UK adaptation came with Daniel Deronda in 1921, followed by The Mill on the Floss in 37. From 1930, there was a George Eliot Fellowship based in Coventry, near where she was born in Nuneaton. It wasn't until the late 40s that there was a major British revival of interest in her works. And this has much to do with... Francis Raymond Leavis. Just to explain for those of you who have yet to encounter this giant of literary criticism, Leavis was active in Cambridge University between the 1930s and the 1960s. He profoundly affected the way in which English literature was studied by making it more intellectually rigorous and morally earnest. 
It won't come as a surprise to you, therefore, to hear that this was to George Eliot's advantage. Indeed, the tone of some of her literary criticism resembles Leavis's own. After rewriting the English poetic canon in New Bearings in English Poetry and Revaluation, both from the 30s, he did the same for the novel canon in The Great Tradition of 1948. For him, the great English novelists, quote, are all distinguished by a vital capacity for experience, a kind of reverend openness before life and a marked moral intensity. And by the really great English novelists, he meant Austin, Eliot, James and Conrad. Stern is trifling. Fielding's virtue was to make Austin possible. Emily Bronte, of course, had a minor tradition of her own. Dickens was a genius, but not serious enough. Trollope was minor. Thackeray a bit better. Joyce was a dead end because not organic enough. D.H. Lawrence is the future. He defends George Eliot for most of the charges which had been made against her. He found that hers was moral intelligence, not Victorian didacticism. Silas Marner may be improbable from the point of view of plot, but it is morally true. Charm, he argues, had been overvalued in comparison with maturity and has led to the overvaluation of Eliot's early works. Leavis finds that the best thing Eliot ever wrote was the novel Gwendolyn Harleth, by which he means Daniel Deronda with the Jewish half cut, up, cut out. This he compares to Anna Karenina, which he in turn considers Tolstoy's greatest work. She may not be as great as Tolstoy, he says, but she is great in the same way. His criticisms of Eliot, therefore, are new ones. Far from being marred by intellectualism, he argues, the relevant characteristic, rather, is apt to strike the reader as something quite other than toughness or dryness. We note it as an emotional quality, something that strikes as the direct and sometimes embarrassing presence of the author's own personal need. He found the Jewish half of Daniel Deronda, quote, embarrassingly fervid. He thought that there was too little critical distance generated from Maggie, Dorothea, or indeed Will Ladislaw, precisely because he is a ladies' man. In the 1950s, the Leverside tra trend was developed in new ways. In 1953, John Holloway, a fellow of all souls in Oxford, published The Victorian Sage Studies in Argument. In it, he put forward a case for seeing Carlyle, Disraeli, George Eliot, Newman, Arnold and Hardy as sage-like in a distinctly Victorian way. He observes, The fashion for thinking that in Victorian culture there was nothing of any value, nothing which does not warrant supercilious exposure, is happily passing. For the Victorian sage, true assent to propositions comes from the whole, emotional come intellectual self. Correspondingly, what is the value of them that survives lies in the aesthetic experience of their words, not of their paraphrasable ideas, their techniques of persuasion being organic to the content. He considered Eliot to exclude, quote, a large part of human nature, including anger, jealousy, savagery, revenge and transient emotions in general. Romola might be thought of as a striking counterexample to this argument.
He also goes back somewhat to the pre-Levisite conception of her ethics, finding that in Eliot's works, personal happiness is subordinate and accidental. Quote, vice is always punished, virtue may or may not be, and modestly. He defends her from accusations of the pathetic fallacy, for example, the thunderstorm at the end of Middlemarch, by pointing out that this fallacy is tolerated in Shakespeare. Perhaps it is odd, he says, that devices which are praised in an Elizabethan writer as evidence of an integrated sensibility should be quite so readily condemned in a Victorian as cheap. The 50s also saw the beginning of the publication of Gordon Haight's nine-volume edition of her letters, which was both a sign and a cause of increasing sympathy, to use her term, to Eliot. Finally, in 1959, Barbara Hardy published The Novels of George Eliot which started a new line of criticism by praising the form of her novels. However, she did warn against the new critical propensity for demanding and finding coherence in long realist novels. Quote, We insist that the Jamesian large loose baggy monster has unity, has symbolic concentration, has patterns of imagery and a thematic construction of character, and in the result... The baggy monster is processed by our new criticism into something strikingly like the original Jamesian streamlined beast. In the 60s, UC Knöpfelmacher combined formal with ideological analysis. By 1965, Haight was able to note that her reputation has now risen to the point where many authorities place her again in the very top rank of English novelists. Three years later, he published his own biography of her, which stressed her intellectual heritage and opened up new lines of inquiry for criticism. It's also worth observing that Eliot came off relatively well from the changes in attitude towards sex in the 1960s. Leavis had pointed out that in every one of her works there there was an irregular sexual relationship dealt with with far less of a sense of taboo than in Dickens, Thackeray or Trollope. The 1970s saw several new approaches to her. Let's start with the Marxists. In 1971, Raymond Williams published The English Novel from Dickens to Lawrence. He complained that Eliot did not sufficiently individuate workers and that she moved upper class in her later novels as if in response to the supposed needs of her supposed readers. But, according to her, According to Williams, her individual responsibility was disjunct from her analysis of society. Terry Eagleton, in Criticism and Ideology of 1976, also found that Eliot tried and failed to resolve the contradiction between romantic individualism and scientific Feuerbachian corporatism, but that she self-consciously extended the social range of the novel and, moreover, that, quote, some of those critics speaking with active distaste of Ladislaw sound remarkably like Mrs. Codwallader. He's a man of the 1960s, and people object for the same reasons. In Ladislaw, according to Eagleton, Eliot is following a thread to the future as she tried in Daniel Deronda. Deconstruction started work on Eliot with J. J. Hillis Miller's celebrated essay, Optic and Semiotic in Middlemarch of 1975. He found her to anticipate deconstructive thinking, to disrupt totalising impulses. He points, as one might expect, to the analogy of the pier glass in chapter 27 of Middlemarch. 
An eminent philosopher among my friends who can dignify even your ugly furniture by lifting it into the serene light of science has shown me this pregnant little fact. Your pier glass or extensive surface of polished steel made to be rubbed by a housemaid will be minutely and multitudinously scratched in all directions, but place, now, place it now against a lighted candle as the centre of illumination and lo! The scratches will seem to arrange themselves in a fine series of concentric circles round that little sun. It is demonstrable that the scratches are going everywhere impartially, and it is only your candle which produces the flattering illusion of concentric arrangement, its light falling with an exclusive optical selection. These things are a parable. The scratches are events, and the candle is the egoism of people, especially people such as Rosamond Vincy, for example. The post-structuralist take on this is to say that non-deconstructive critics do the same when holding their critical candles against the pier glass of her works, rather than realising that the text of Middlemarch is scratched and acknowledges that it is scratched in all directions. It was David Carroll, just to fast forward for a moment, who in 1992 made the most ambitious case for Eliot as a postmodern in George Eliot and the Conflict of Interpretations, which argues that each novel is an experiment in which the ending is a climax which disconfirms all theories of life. Quote, An essential feature of any comprehensive worldview in Eliot's fiction is the inevitability of its self-deconstruction. But such claims have been contested. Cynthia Chase, back in 1978, believed Eliot did not recognise, quote, the warring forces of signification in the text, and argued that Daniel Deronda was committed to the triumph of idealism over irony. With this, on balance, I would agree. The 70s was also the period of non-deconstructionist feminist criticism. By and large, such critics were disappointed by Eliot. In the early 70s, they were looking for role models inside as well as outside of fiction. Kate Millett, in her Sexual Politics of 1970, a landmark work, observed, that Wolf, as Wolf had, that Eliot lived the revolution but failed to write about it, quite apart from not supporting the female suffrage. Later in the 70s, though, attitudes began to soften with Zelda Austin's 1976 why feminists are angry with George Eliot, implying that perhaps they should be less so. Gilbert and Gubar's 1979 The Mad Woman in the Attic argued that Eliot herself was conflicted, passionate, suffered. She had internalised patriarchy, but this led to self-loathing that was expressed as violent. Her apparent conservatism was in fact defensive against her passions. In the 1980s, Elaine Showalter, in The Greening of George Eliot, presented her not as an aloof mother, but as an attractive, suffering sister. Contrast Wolf, who, if anything, had seen her as an aloof, suffering mother. And in 1986, Gillian Beer archly remarked that any theories, quote, which result in blame for the most creatively achieving of women, must themselves be questioned. The 80s also saw several studies which concentrated on Eliot's relations to science. This line of inquiry was started by Bernard Paris in the 60s with Experiments in Life and was now taken up with Beer's Darwin's Plots of 1983 and Shelley Shuttleworth's George Eliot and 19th Century Science of 1984. A decade later, Harold Bloom returned to moral analysis in the Western Canon, in which he described Middlemarch as wisdom literature, and said, 
I can think of no other major novelist before or since whose overt moralizings constitute an aesthetic virtue rather than a disaster. She continues to go strong. In 2006, a collection of essays appeared called Middlemarch in the 21st Century, edited by Karen Chase. Her popularity, in the true sense of that word, is more apparent in the frequency of television adaptations. The take-off decade for this was the 1980s, as it was for that of Victorian and early 20th century novels in general. The BBC started its Elliott series with The Mill on the Floss in 1978. Silas Marner appeared in 85 with Ben Kingsley as Silas. Adam Bede in 91. Middlemarch with a screenplay by Andrew Davis in 94. Another Mill in 97, Daniel Deronda in 2002, another Silas Marner in 2007, and there is a Middlemarch supposedly forthcoming from Sam Mendes. What's noticeable is that in the main they have declined in quality over time. To compare the slow-moving, gently lit, dramatic, socially interested, sexually reticent Mill on the Floss of 1978, with the fast-paced, sunlit, cinematic, physically beautiful and undemanding Middlemarch of 94 is to realise a shift in the direction of populism in television over that period. But Eliot remains popular. If David Cecil was right, and we necessarily hate our immediate ancestors, or find it, quote, almost impossible to enter into the spirit of the age that comes just before one's own, then this is perhaps because the Victorian age is no longer just before our own. Who knows? Perhaps in time the architectural snobs sneer at the Victorian vogue for neo-Gothic will give way to parity of esteem between that and the neoclassical architecture of the century before. But of course we haven't reached the end of history and the graph continues beyond us. There will be times in the future when what Eliot has to offer is both more and less valued than it is at present. Any sense that British society is, to use the current phrase, broken, might incline people to sympathy with her ideal of self-disciplining sympathy. And the very breadth of her reading means that there is always ample material for new areas of criticism. So now I've given an idea of where you stand in the history of her critics. Go and shape that history as you will.